everybody. I'm Kyle Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us, everyone. It is Tuesday, February the 27th, and it's Deep Dive Day. And today we are diving into the world of anime, one of my favorite topics. It's clearly, as anybody who listens to the show knows, something I do in my downtime, watch a lot of anime, but I'm not the only one, obviously. We're seeing anime all over the place from games to music videos netflix is investing big in anime not to mention all the live action shows so it's really starting to feel like it's no longer a niche or a nerd or an otaku thing anymore well see otaku now i'm gonna have to ask what that means and the person i'm gonna ask what that means is chris plant he's the editor-in-chief and co-founder of polygon that's fox's gaming and entertainment news site chris welcome to the pod good to have you on Thank you so much for having me. All right. That word Kimberly just used, which I cannot even remember 14 seconds later. What, Kimberly, what did you say? <laughs> the simplest Otaku. version of... Otaku. Yeah. The simple version is a fan. That, okay. That's the easy right. way of thinking of okay. it. All right. Okay. So look, let's let's start just because I am the simpleton in this conversation. And there are many people out there, uh, not probably as simple as I am, but who might not be familiar. So if you had to describe anime to like my mom, who's a woman of a certain age, um, wh- how would you do it? There are any number of versions of it that could be correct and anime, where it's from and how you describe it is disputed. But I would say probably animated TV and films coming from Japan. Okay. There's a, sorry, as as Kim- that, Kimberly, I'm going to climb yeah. in here. I'm going to climb in here for some clarification. There is a certain style, though, that anime has, right? Or am I just sheltered and have only seen a little bit of it? Yeah, I think it's, it feels like a certain style, again, okay. because of where it comes from. In the same way that if you look at, you know, a certain type of animation from uh, California that came around with uh, Walt Disney is very ah, of okay. a certain right. trend and location, okay. right? Okay. So why has anime really kind of exploded onto the national consciousness here in the United States recently? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer is availability. Um, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, access to anime and uh, manga, which would be like the written, the comic book form of it, right, was just difficult. I grew up in the Midwest. Um, my access to anime was maybe I went to Sam Goody, which is a store people probably don't even remember anymore. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> and I and you, would, you would walk into Sam Goody and they would have a section of anime, unfortunately, usually near like the not safe for work stuff. And <laughs> you would get like a, a VHS tape that had three random episodes and it cost you like every dollar you had saved that month. Um, and that was like it. Or... If you knew the right people, you knew how to get access to bootleg copies that you would like share on VHS tapes. Needless to say, whatever you did, it was hard, it was messy, it was low quality. Um, now, for especially Gen Z, they are being raised with access to basically infinite amounts of anime and spanning the history of, of it. So whether that is, you know, just because the family has a Netflix account and it's waiting for them right there or they have access to a streaming platform like Crunchyroll or High Dive that specializes in anime, they can get so much for really just a, a, a tiny bit of money each month that gives them you know, the keys to the car. Do, do you think uh, it is actually streaming that has made or helped anime go, go more mainstream? Yeah, I, I do, because I think um, the, the incentives of streaming as a business really benefited from the anime catalog. And by that, I mean, Mm. you had this period where 
every streamer wanted to scale and go global at the same time, right? They wanted just as much content as, as they could possibly get. And they wanted to be appearing in different countries and they wanted to bring the content from those places over. So you have these situations where Netflix is looking uh, to move into Japan. They are partnering with a lot of established studios. They're licensing a lot of content. And then what they're finding is, hey, we already have it. We put it on the American servers. It does really well and it just balloons from there. Hmm. I think when you're talking about that back catalog, it's also worth explaining the variety of right. types of programming that falls under the anime umbrella, mm -hmm. if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think this also explains why the audience itself is so much more diverse than the audience that you'll find for most entertainment, especially in America. And by diverse, I mean both in terms of race and ethnicity and also um, sexual identity. Um, the LGBTQ community is widely represented across anime fandom, especially uh, within Gen Z. And the reason that is, is because of the diversity of content, in my opinion. And by that, I mean, if you want to watch stories about just cooking, congratulations, mm -hmm. you have it. If you want to watch stories about sports and you happen to really like ping pong, have I got an anime just for you? Um, if you like fantasy stories that are targeting a queer audience, that's there for you. There is so much variety and diversity of content that really no matter who you are, you're going to find something for you that feels almost micro-targeted. Hmm. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. Is th Sorry, Kimberly, go ahead. What? Well, I was just going to say I remember being shocked at myself once for being deeply enthralled in an anime about people who wrote dictionaries for a living. I kid yeah. you not. <laughs> so all right so i have so many questions um uh who like who first of all it's interesting to me that you guys call them an anime i got caught up in an anime mm. about dictionaries can, can somebody explain that construction to me does, well, well, does that make I, any I, sense I, you you I, talk I, about it like it's yeah, a singular no, I, thing I, I, and yet we have this broad content stream called anime as well right yeah i i, I, I think i'm replacing to... cartoon <laughs> yeah i guess <laughs> Yeah, or or a film, right? That you could um, be a, a fan of fan okay. of film, yeah. or you could watch a film. Yeah. I think it's like kind of performing that same okay. thing. It is All a right. medium unto itself, um, right. and because within it, you could have TV shows, you could have right. films, you could have any of these genres. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, Kimberly. I'm going to climb all over this one because I have all the questions mm. and you have all the answers. Go for it. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so it originated in Japan. Does does the content still mostly come from Japan? Is there a domestic American anime content creation industry? Help me understand that part of it. Yeah, this is where it gets tricky, and um, fans will have differing opinions here. There is a, a significant contingent of fans who will tell you that anime is only anime if it is coming and produced in Japan. Well, that's like the champagne thing. Come on, man. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right? And, and just like the champagne thing, you're kicking a hornet's nest right, right. <laughs> when, you, when you say you that it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but yes, there are um, studios in, in other countries that are making entertainment that looks and sounds and feels like anime and whether or not it is by definition, um, I would say is not especially useful outside of, you know, the most hardcore fans. Uh, I think uh, most people when they're watching the average viewer, when they're watching something, uh, it all kind of blends together. Got it. Are, sorry, Kimberly, go ahead. 
No, that's well, all right. Are, are, you are, got all the are, questions. Are, are there ancillary, <laughs> and we talked about this, I, I guess it was yesterday, maybe on the pod. Are there ancillary industries that go along? There must be, right? Uh, you know, how in, in video games, we were talking yesterday about, about how there's music and scoring and, you know, voice actors and all this jazz. There must be that same support structure. There must be that same infrastructure supporting anime, right? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, I okay. mean, well, especially if you, if you if you go to Japan or you go to an anime convention right. in America, you will see everything. What we actually found in our survey that was so interesting to me is that for Gen Z, when they're making um, purchases, right, they're making purchases that are inspired by anime, but not necessarily anime content. So when they go and buy apparel, right, it, it is not anime content flows, but it's inspired by the colors or the styles that they're seeing in shows. And we saw that for Gen Z, 72% of uh, Gen Z anime fans within the last year had made a like apparel decision inspired by what they like in an anime. Um, I just find that kind of like staggering. Yeah. Say more about that survey, actually, and what you guys found. Yeah. Key, key, key so, thing, key takeaways. The key takeaway. So the, the point of the survey for us was can we prove just how big anime is? Because right. while uh, you can look out your window and see, hey, this is all over all these streaming platforms, it's you know doing well in theaters, there's not a lot of research on anime, especially in America. Hmm. Uh, so that's what we set out to actually do. A lot of what I will say here to an anime fan will sound quite obvious. But again, there just wasn't the hard evidence. And what we found is, yes, it is colossal. That um, amongst Gen Z anime is watched more often than the nfl that in terms of raw revenue wow. anime and the nfl are tied they're wow. both at about 20 billion in revenue um and wow. anime is growing fast so when you think of anime um i think it can be seen as niche and the reality is it, that couldn't be further from the truth and the reality is to stick with the nfl even um brands and businesses understand this. The Los Angeles Chargers for the past two years have announced their season schedules with custom-made anime YouTube wow. videos. Yeah, wow. so they are pulling from the anime audience because they're saying, hey, we need to start pulling people into our community. We need marketplace anime, man. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, it reminds me of that Nike ad during the Women's World Cup. Remember? Yeah. That was anime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, um, we've seen it all over. Even tourism councils are now using it for, I think it was the state of Oregon did one. Um, but yeah, they're, they're everywhere. Well, if anime is, economically at least, as big as the NFL, why then do you think it persists to be seen as a niche thing or a nerd thing, at least in mm -hmm. some circles? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I I love this question. So uh, I'll give you a little bit of backstory first. I I come from the world of video games originally. I've been um, covering video games as a journalist for around twenty years, and um, about twelve years ago, I founded Polygon. And we largely focused on video games. And I promise this is related to anime. No, it's okay. But when we did that, the problem that we realized then was this thing is colossal, but the world hasn't taken it seriously yet. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to create a space where, you know, you could look it on your work computer and not like have it like banned. Um, that, you know, that it was a place you need to you say more about that. Because actually, Sorry, just you need to say more about this because this is actually an important sort of 
side awkward thing about anime that needs to be acknowledged. Go ahead. Oh, yes. it's this is the yes. this is the not safe for work thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah. Well, to, to wrap to put up on the games thing, we did that with games, and what we found was eventually people age into it being your popular culture. That it becomes mm. normal mm. just because the people who make decisions, the people who run companies, like myself become the people who were raised on it and therefore even though it had been mainstream really for a decade now it is mainstream again amongst the people who get to decide officially right, what right, the mainstream right. is they get to decide right. where toyota and mcdonald's spend their ad budgets which you know they're spending on anime right now mm -hmm. um so i think that is why it seems invisible to people because we have a proximity bias right and the people who are deciding what news stories get aired who 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 decide the culture a lot of them aren't quite of that age just yet um but you're right we, we there is a thing we should talk about with anime and that is maybe some perceptions or how people have come across it when they've been on the internet yeah you go man i'm not well, I'm, yeah. I'm not going anywhere near that one <laughs> yeah okay okay well yeah i think i think there is a bit of a problem similar to video games where there is a preconceived um, image of what anime is. In the same way that, again, 10 years ago, you spoke with someone about video games, and the thing you would hear is, well, those are just things where you shoot people in the face. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, no, there are farming games that are massively popular, right? There are all sorts of games. There's puzzle games. Games can be a little bit of anything. Um, and I think that there are... People who hear anime and they picture one of two things. They picture um, dudes with muscles like going Super Saiyan and their hair turning yellow and then punching each other in the face. Uh, so which is an upgrade from not shooting each other in the face, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. um, and and then the other one is, yeah, like some not safe for work stuff that maybe when they were like, I'm not accusing anybody here, but maybe they were looking to download uh, an MP3 or a video or something through a, um, a, a, an illegal means and they saw an ad and it was a cartoon that was quite revealing. Um, and they're thinking, well, that must be what anime is. And yes, that, that stuff exists, but that is by no means the majority of what this content is. Hmm. But I will say as someone who consumes a lot of anime, it the representations of women as well as people of color are often mm. very problematic. And you have to be careful even when consuming perfectly legal like general population uh, accessible to everybody anime of like really weird representation of children uh in yeah. very over sexualized ways and like you sometimes don't know what you're going to get <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree it's basically what i would say i i i think um i think that is a problem that we see streaming services getting at, and I think we will, I suspect as um, Western partners become more involved financially, that we'll see um, more care taken there. Just because a company like Netflix is going to be cautious to a degree that maybe um, the original animation studios aren't, right? That they have a, they have a sense of their viewer sensitivities that they're going to... Um, bring up when they are, uh, I guess, editing or producing uh, stuff that is coming up down the line. But I think you're right. Uh, the term for it is fan service is mm. often a thing that gets 
talked about, which is taking characters that are beloved and displaying them in like very sexually explicit ways. Yeah. It is almost exclusively focused on female characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, slight change of gears from that. Um, so Netflix is getting into this. There are, as you mentioned, some other uh, platforms. Crunchyroll is one of them. I, I can't remember some of the others that, that you have mentioned today and Kimberly has mentioned in the past. Here's my question. Do you worry about the 800-pound gorilla coming in and squashing these other platforms and then that somehow changing either the content or the availability of it? Do you mean by that, like, that Netflix will come in and they will just kind of yeah, I don't know. Just scoop I don't it all know. Up. I mean, they've got so much power, you know what I mean? They do. Um, honestly, I don't. Okay. And and the reason I don't is I personally believe that boutique streaming services are, are going to be a large part of the future of mm -hmm. entertainment. All right. Um, and I say that as somebody who watches most of their entertainment on the Criterion channel uh, for older movies, um, Shudder for horror films, and Crunchyroll for anime. Hmm. Uh when I Crunchy go on like your to, only option now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, High Dive is there too. Let's let's not forget okay. these folks. Um, but okay. Yeah, I, I think I think Netflix is becoming kind of the entry point to a lot of people's tastes. Um, but it is not the the place where you stay mm, unless okay. you you know really like uh, I don't know reality TV game shows. Um, it it is a um a tasting platter. Uh, and I, I think that applies to Netflix too. While they do have a lot of money and a lot of resources, um, they do have to disperse that across a whole bunch of different audiences, a whole bunch of different countries, and, and they can't just eat up an entire sector like this. What about this shift to live action? Or not, not shift, but you're seeing a lot of these classic anime shows getting live action treatments. One Piece, Cowboy Bebop, um, <laughs> other uh, Death Note, not so great, uh, and, and others. And now Avatar, The Last Airbender, although that's American animation. Um, we just, I think Naruto just got announced. What is that doing to the industry yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I think it can feel really new um, in America to see all these animated shows and anime specifically getting adapted into live action. But the truth is, in Japan, live action adaptations have been happening for over 20 years. Um, and honestly, stage play adaptations are even really? a thing. Yeah, not not so uncommon. Wow. Um, so I... I think that what we're seeing is that make its way here. I think what's always been uncomfortable, as we've seen adaptations like Ghost in the Shell, is the casting mm. of that, right? Um, but I, I think as um, specifically American... that you have these uh, Japanese cartoons and Japanese characters consistently being cast by as white people in the United States oh, is what you're talking yes, about. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you, you yes. think people would have learned that that's not cool now, man. You can't do that. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they are improving. Um, uh, I, there was a, a understandable and reasonable controversy around um, the Avatar The Last Airbender, um, which is an animated show inspired by um, anime, <laughs> though it's not, I guess, technically. Mm -hmm. But this show, when it was made into a film, um, basically... Watch right into Shyamalan this. version. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now the Netflix version is, you know, it tried to account for that. Whether or not the show is good is a whole separate thing. Um, but at least that they, you know, they were making a conscious effort this time around. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, slowly but surely the the studios are learning from those sorts of mistakes. Hmm. We're going to have to end it there, even though, you know, I can talk about anime forever. Chris Plant is editor-in-chief and co-founder of Polygon at Vox Media. Thank you so much, Chris. Totally fascinating, Thank Chris. You. Thanks a bunch for your time. Appreciate it. Man. Thanks. I, so now you'll know what I, I'm talking I, well, about. <laughs> now I have a, a hint, right? Because in that last question there, you rattled off a bunch of stuff and they were just words and I didn't understand any of the <laughs> what it was. And I'm like, okay. But look, you're an aficionado. You're an expert and you, you dig it and, and you know the, that's good. It's good. Well, and I also find it interesting what Chris was saying about the reason it's mainstream is because the people who like it are old enough to force right, it to, to be make, mainstream. Right, to make the decision. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly that's totally right. Because totally right. I am sitting here and I'm 40 and I get to help decide what we cover on the show. There you go. That means we're taking anime seriously. Right. right. Versus when I was in my 20s pitching it at NPR, everyone's looking at me like right. I'm mad. Right. And I'm 40 as well and I'm going along for the ride with you. <laughs> no? No? Yes, All right. Let's course. go. Let's get of out course. of here. Of course. Of course, Kai. All right. So are you a fan of anime? If you are, tell us about your favorite anime series um, and, and why you love it. Maybe even how you got into anime or if this is new for you, what you're thinking about it now. We're at 508-827-6278. That's also 508-UB-SMART. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. News is where we are on the podcast right now. Kimberly Adams, what do you got? Mine's Pretty quick, but slightly uh, anime-related in that it also <laughs> sort of kind of okay. comes from Japan. This is my very roundabout way to say that the Washington Post is out with its prediction for peak bloom of the cherry blossoms oh. this year here in D.C., which is my thing, of course. And the Washington Post is predicting peak bloom between March 19th and March 23rd, which is about 10 days earlier than oh. normal. Um, the National Park Service, I think, get, releases its peak bloom forecast on Thursday. And, you know, 
climate change. Mm -hmm. So since 1921, the earliest peak bloom on record occurred on March 15th, 1990. And they're predicting again March 19th through the 23rd. And they're blaming it on climate change. And that it's not just the peak bloom. Apparently, um, the flowers that you were talking about are that are beautiful in your part of the country oh, every year. Oh, yeah, the jacarandas, yeah. The, yes, that they're blooming earlier as well. Mm. Um, I saw somewhere that there was a, a bloom in, in like January uh, wow. for, for those in, in some places. And so, you know... I'm excited, but yeah. it's not a good signal. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, sorry, I'm just Googling jacaranda blooming, uh, Los Angeles 2024. Late April usually, but if it gets warm enough, uh, maybe in March. Yeah, so which isn't great. Not great. Yeah. God, that's such great Beautiful, color. but not yeah, great. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Beautiful, but not great. Uh, all, right, all right, let's hear it, news. So uh, this one is uh, also not great, but it has nothing to do with beauty. There's an article in Bloomberg today, and I hate to be a total wonk about this, but uh, about commercial real estate. And we've been waiting since the pandemic emptied out office buildings all over the country for for almost literally the debt to come due, because most of these big office buildings mm -hmm. are bought uh, with mortgages and debt and loans and all kinds of things. And nobody's really known uh, how much less those buildings are going to be worth until fairly recently. And Bloomberg has a great piece today pointing out that those deals are starting to be done. And more to the point, what the actual discounts are going to be. And here's just a couple of little tidbits. Uh, an office building in Los Angeles sold for, sorry, scrolling, 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 uh, blah, blah, blah. Office, Prime Office Tower in Los Angeles sold in December for 45% less than its purchase price a decade ago. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, in Manhattan, brokers are, are marketing debt uh, backed by a Blackstone-owned office building at a 55-0% discount. He yeah, here's the deal. That debt doesn't go away, right? So these real estate companies and, more importantly, the regional banks that hold a lot of that debt are going to have to write mm -hmm. down that debt. And if you've been following the news about um, New York Community Bank, right, of, of the last number of weeks— that could be a real, real challenge because regional banks went heavy into real estate loans. So as these deals start to get done, as debt comes due, as buildings transfer, we're going to discover how big the commercial real estate hole is. I encourage you to read this piece. There's a trillion dollars in real estate loans coming due uh, before the end of next year. So look out. I was reading this before the show, and uh, what I'm really fascinated by is that you've got Powell and Yellen, mm -hmm. you know, singing the same song about this is all going to be fine. And yeah, it reminds me it. of that meme of the dog sitting in the room on fire, and it's like, yeah. this is fine. <laughs> it's fine. That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. It's fine. Yep. Totally. Anyway. I don't know. That's got to right. go somewhere. Well, that is, yeah. That's ahead. it for the news. Let's move on to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, we are still hearing about landlines in that uniquely timed conversation. I hear the glee in your it. voice. I'm just going to say that this email that we're about to get is a plant. I don't know anything about it, but come on, man. I got his text message from my brother the other day, and he was like, You were right on time with your comment about right. landlines. Yeah. And I was like, Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, oh so we are still hearing mainly uh, from people who still have landlines like me. Let's go to the tape. Hello, this is Gene from Beaver Creek, Ohio. 
As a fellow landline holdout, I sympathized when Kimberly caught a little flack in February 16th show for having a landline because who would you call? <laughs> that question was answered for me during today's AT&T outage. Some of my friends and associates who've teased me for clinging to obsolete technology received a smug voicemail stating, who's laughing about having a landline now? <laughs> and yes, this call is being made on a landline. Gene, Gene, Gene. Oh, my God. All right, so we also got an email from Kim saying she uses her landline for telemarketers so she doesn't get as many spam calls on her cell, which is kind of smart. Mm-hmm. Also, Beth, she's in upstate New York, says if you have a landline, quote, you always have a way to find your cell phone if you can't remember where you put it, which is... A fair point. Can I tell you that is how I really? use my landline oh the my most Lord. is to oh help me Lord. find my cell phone. Oh my <laughs> Lord. All right. On the way out, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, as we always do. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes to us from Julio Salgado, a digital illustrator based out here in Long Beach, California. Roll the tape. What's something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about? Well, I used to think that in order to become a respected artist, I had to stick to one lane in the creative field. But in the past two decades, I've been a writer, a digital illustrator, a muralist, and even an extra on a TV show. In this economy, a check is a check. As long as I get to be creative, forcing myself into one lane in my field doesn't make sense to me. It's boring. Last summer, I started flexing both my writing and drawing muscles with a monthly comic strip I created for the LA Times. Am I a respected artist now? Well, it depends who you ask. But allowing myself to play with various art mediums has made me the artist I am today. You know, that's that's actually a great uh, voice memo because it's about hustle. It's about self-confidence. Mm-hmm. It's about trying new things. There's a lot in there. That's really cool. That's really cool. I mean, I think that's important for all of us, especially like given how we're all kind of freaking out about AI stealing our jobs, you know, being flexible and being willing to expand what your skill set can do is great. And for what it's worth, you are a respected artist. We get to decide. We're saying yes. And I'm looking at the cartoon strip. It's really cool. And I, I think it looks good. So, yeah. yeah. We, we will, of course, have a link to it uh, on our show page. All y'all can see it for yourselves. In the meanwhile, uh, send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question, would you? What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Our phone number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg-Seeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Gary O'Keefe. And our intern is Talia Menchaca. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager, but only on Tuesdays when his name is in the credit, is Neil Scarborough. <laughs> I don't know what he does the other four days of the week. also that's a test to see if he actually listens so we'll see we will see gotta listen to the end boss we all want to be our best selves but it can be an expensive journey from experimenting with alternative medicine i was working with a natural holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. 
I'm Rima Kreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.